Radio 4 presents The Mark Steele Lecture A series of lectures about Englishmen who changed the course of history Episode 3 Charlie Chaplin Charlie Chaplin, the Englishman who became the most popular comedian in America. Now, just think for a moment what an extraordinary achievement that was. I've seen comedians in America. It's completely different from in England. They just walk on the stage and go, How you doing, Chicago? Woo, 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 woo! And the audience all starts doing it. Woo, 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 woo! And I've watched this and thought, I've never gone down that well in my life. He's only asked them how they are. <laughs> people individually. How you doing there, sir? Nice to meet you. Hey, buddy, two ladies over there. Good to meet you. Hey, how are you? Okay, you too. How you doing? And people answer them back. I'm doing just fine, but you could never do this in England, because you'd go around saying, how you doing, buddy? And people would say, I've had a bit of a bad back lately. <laughs> <laughs> so once you get to 42, every day's a bonus. <laughs> and Chaplin's films at the time were thought of as adult films. It's only years later that for some reason he became thought of as just a bloke with a silly walk who banged into things. Light comedy, ideal for Saturday morning kids' telly. It'd be like if in 50 years' time, just before Live and Kicking, they always showed a Martin Scorsese film. <laughs> and there were parents all over the country going, look, Jessica, do you get it? Isn't it funny? Do you get it? You're talking to me. You're talking to me. <laughs> Chaplin's comedy and popularity, it seems to me, only makes sense if you look at the upheavals in society which his career influenced and which then influenced him. Chaplin was one of the 20th century's greatest and richest rebels, and a real rebel. Chaplin was born in South London in 1889, his early life taking place in the shadow of the workhouse. Now, for a while, his mother worked in the music hall, but illness wrecked her voice, so she took to sewing, until she fell behind on the payments and the machine was repossessed. So the three of them were forced to enter the Lambeth workhouse. But when Chaplin arrived there, the part that shocked him the most wasn't the poverty, and he wrote later... On that doleful day, I didn't realise what was happening until we entered the workhouse gate. Then the forlorn bewilderment of it struck me. For there we were made to separate, mother going in one direction to the women's ward, and we in another to the children's. And of course this would have an enormous impact on a child, because most of us can remember the state we got in when we were six and lost our mum because she was at the other end of the co-op. Because <laughs> you don't think rationally at that age, so you start howling as if your mum is actually going to leave the shop without you and then get home and think nothing of it <laughs> for about ten years until she says, didn't we used to have a son? <laughs> So what must have gone through Charlie and his brother Sidney's minds at that moment? And even worse, three weeks later, when they were transferred to a school for orphans and destitute children, so couldn't even see their mother on visiting days. Now, even in his 70s, Chaplin still got annoyed with Somerset Maugham for suggesting that there was something liberating and dignified about poverty, like it's a fashion statement. Oh, I hear scurvy's in this year. <laughs> I remember when I lived in a council flat, and I met someone once who, when I told him that I lived in a council flat, they said, oh, that's trendy. <laughs> like all council tenants meet up once a week somewhere at a cocktail party and say, oh, hasn't the urine in the lifts been artistic of <laughs> But the chaplains were in and out of workhouses until their mother, probably as a result of malnutrition, started to go mad. And for a while, Charlie spent his days in a wood yard helping out wood choppers. But what saved the boys was the music hall. From the middle of the 19th century, there'd been a boom in the leisure industry since the working week in factories had been reduced to 60 hours. And the rulers of the day saw other benefits to the music halls. So Joseph Hobson, owner of the Leeds Casino, said, 
Was not the working man less harmfully employed when listening to such innocent entertainments as I provide than he would be drinking in some tap room, talking politics until he becomes a chartist or a rebellious democrat dangerous to society? What a brilliant idea that the music hall could stop people thinking rebelliously. <laughs> as if a typical conversation of the time was... Do you fancy a riot against the capitalists tonight? Yeah, I would do, mate, only I'm going down the Empire to see Arthur Nesselbury sing Oh, Mrs. Ermintrude, there's a flea in your Malagatawny. <laughs> but towards the end of the century, theatre's become grander, and the musical started attracting the middle class, just like now with the football, where I'm sure soon there'll be a chant that goes, You're going home in a private ambulance. <laughs> Imagine what it was like in the 1900s. Hey, after the show, do you fancy going down that new workhouse theme pub, Ricketts? <laughs> Chaplin, with the help of his father, who'd been a successful musical act himself until he became an alcoholic, signed on at a theatrical agency and he got a part as a page boy in Sherlock Holmes. And with this, he toured for a year and then got a job in Fred Carnot's Music Hall Company acting in these comedy sketches. Chaplin was clearly a brilliant actor and a natural clown and in 1913 he toured America with Fred Carnot's company. And while he was there, he was spotted by Max Sennett of the Keystone Film Company, who offered him a job. Now, Sennett was making one film a week and told Chaplin that the films had no plot, just a bit of unscripted fooling around which had to lead to a big chase. But people still flocked to the cinema because whatever the film, they were just astonished at the novelty of the technology. It was like the internet now when you get these people who go, wow, I've just logged on to the menu of a fish restaurant in Kuala Lumpur. <laughs> now, there was someone who actually said to me, they went, look, there you are, look, that's how brilliant the internet is, look, there you are, look, a list of all the places the Queen is going to be at tomorrow. <laughs> Ah, oh, at last! For years I've sometimes had that uneasy feeling, unable to relax, until I think, oh, maybe it's because I don't know where the Queen is. <laughs> and it must have been like this with film. But all that was set to change when, during one day's filming, Senate asked Chaplin to go and choose a costume and put on some comedy makeup. So Chaplin went to the wardrobe and found a hat, moustache, tight coat, baggy trousers, big feet and cane. And he invented the tramp, and the character became so enormously popular that Chaplin was soon in a position to demand that he directed his own films. But also, why did Chaplin think, however naturally, of a tramp? And why was it that over the next four years, from 1913 to 1917, this character became the most hugely popular figure on the whole planet? Chaplin's teenage years were spent in the period of Edwardian deference, the peak of upstairs-downstairs society. There were two million people in domestic service. But in the two years before the First World War, the whole ideology met this enormous challenge. In America, there was a massive wave of strikes. The industrial workers of the world recruited tens of thousands of workers, especially amongst the millions of recent immigrants. The age of automatic deference was coming to an end. And in America, a major symbol of opposition to the factory system was the image of the tramp. In February 1914, a mob of 700 tramps burst into a church in Manhattan demanding food and shelter, and a mass rally of the industrial workers of the world supported them. They urged them to occupy churches throughout America. One of the most popular songs of the time was one that began, Alleluia, I'm a bum. Now, <laughs> Chaplin didn't consciously pick the figure of the tramp with all this in mind, but he must have been aware of what the tramp meant to people, in a way that it probably wouldn't if you said, nip into the wardrobe and find a funny costume to say... Prince Philip. <laughs> so, 
Even the titles of his films over this period show who he was making them about and for. The Floor Walker, The Fireman, The Vagabond, The Janitor, The Immigrant, The Pawn Shop and The Tramp. Now compare that to now when nearly every major film is about advertising executives or architects or rich people poncing about in Notting Hill. <laughs> and even films like Frankenstein, you get Kenneth Branagh going, Oh, melancholy monster, thou that art crying with thine bolt in thy neck beneath his nerve, not a rage which cries yet anything. Oh, for Christ's sake! It's just a monster film. Just go, ah, it's a monster and run! <laughs> Kenneth Branagh in Revenge of the Killer Tomatoes and to be going, oh, vile vegetable, though your, though your squashing leaves me vexed, I cannot help but love your skin so firm and red and ripe and stalk as luscious as an afternoon red and <laughs> Chaplin soon moved to the Mutual Studios and then in 1918 to First National and with each move he gained control over his films and with each extra bit of control, the films became more openly ideological. In The Immigrant, the immigrants are roped into one corner of the boat in terror, just as they sail past the Statue of Liberty. In Shoulder Arms, about the First World War, the Tramp captures a German regiment and shares cigarettes with the German soldiers. And then both sets of soldiers fall about laughing together while Chaplin seizes the officer and spanks him. But, as well as the social radicalism, Chaplin transformed the way that comedies were made. When Chaplin had arrived in Hollywood, no one even shot the same scene twice. So when he took 17 days to make The Janitor, he set a record. The downside of this, of course, was that it must have created the modern actor. Because up till then, no one would have had time to do all that. Oh, look, hang on, um... Look, I'm still a bit concerned with my character here because, I mean, she's quite diligent, isn't she? So surely uh, she would have checked first to see whether there was a blancmange on the seat, don't you think? <laughs> so film acting must have just been like any job, so anyone coming over all lovey-ish must have looked just as daft as a window cleaner going, Peter, you know this bit where I sponge the corner of the window, what's my motivation there? <laughs> and subplots and images on top of the story, like the use of the Statue of Liberty and the Immigrant, they were all new ideas to film audiences, especially in comedy. Uh, at this point, he had no idea how famous he was, until he went to New York, and the chief of the New York police instructed him not to get out at Grand Central Station, as they couldn't control the crowds. Now, the important thing to remember here is that fame wasn't like it is now, when most famous people are just famous for being on things. See, fame now can be a sign of failure. Like, I can't believe that there was one day a few years ago at a drama school where there was a drama student going, Oh, you might all look down your nose at me now, but one day it shall be I, I, that walks to the centre of the set with the cameras poised around, ready to record my every utterance as I look into the camera and say, I feel like chicken tonight. <laughs> But in some respects, Chaplin did become the first modern celebrity. He started going out with a Czech beauty queen, and he became incredibly wealthy. The contract he signed with the Mutual Film Company was for $13,000 a week, which made him the highest paid person in the whole of America, with the exception of the president of US Steel. Now, during the First World War, the government was happy to tolerate him as he spoke at rallies in favour of the war. But then... Chaplin became one of the millions who was inspired by the Russian Revolution. The strike wave in America after the war was even greater than the one before, and Chaplin became friends with Max Eastman, who then became Trotsky's secretary. 
And a government statement called Chaplin a dangerous Bolshevist. So Chaplin responded with a statement about Bolshevik Russia that went, I am immensely interested in that great country and its efforts towards social reconstruction after chaos. Then Chaplin heard rumours that the studios were planning a merger, so Chaplin, along with Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks, met with the producers and directors, D.W. Griffiths and Bill Hart, and they wrecked the planned merger by forming their own film company called United Artists. Now, despite the wage issue, the main motive here was control. And if his bosses were like modern comedy bosses, this is quite easy to understand, I think. Because for some reason, the people who control the comedy business are the most magnificently humorless people in the world. <laughs> They're the people who not only don't get jokes, but they don't even know when something is a joke. <laughs> They're the sort of people who hear a joke and say, but that's impossible. <laughs> I mean, I didn't think dinosaurs could talk. <laughs> and how did it fit into a pub? Honestly, this is honestly true. I had a conversation once with someone who must be in the top ten most important people in the British comedy business. And we were having a discussion about the film Pulp Fiction. And he honestly said, you know, the thing I loved about that film was that the John Travolta character sort of like gets killed. And then the next day, he's back alive again. <laughs> now... If you had a six-year-old child who misunderstood it that much, you'd think, oh, God, we're going to have to send him to special classes. <laughs> By the late 20s, when sound could be coordinated with the film, Chaplin wanted to control even the music. So he taught himself to play the violin and then to conduct, and from then on composed and arranged all the music for his own films. So Chaplin went weeks at a time with no social life, just concentrating on work, followed by short bursts of this glittering social engagement and hobnobbing with the few people who were as famous as he was. He became friendly with Einstein. When he visited England, he had lunch with Churchill. The Prince of Wales invited Chaplin to his castle in the country. He even went out with the President of France, the Queen of Spain, Franklin D. Roosevelt. He was a regular guest of William Randolph Hearst. But amongst the people he remembered most fondly, even through this time were a black truck driver, cigar makers, prize fighters, and a waiter who always quoted Marx or Blake every time he served a course. They should try that at McDonald's, shouldn't they? <laughs> Religion is the opium of the people, sir. Enjoy. <laughs> at one point, he accepted an invitation to go to the wrestling in Kobe in Japan with the son of the Prime Minister of Japan. And while they were watching, his host was informed that his Prime Minister father had been assassinated. But even stranger, it turned out the assassination had been carried out by a nationalist group called the Black Dragon. And the original plan had been to kill Chaplin as well, as they thought that this would lead to war with America. So fancy imagining that the way to start a war is to kill a comedian. <laughs> Maybe they were under the impression that the Archduke Ferdinand was a stage name for Austria's most hilarious ventriloquist. <laughs> Well, we've got to. Throughout this time, Chaplin also found it extremely difficult to have any relationships with women that didn't end up in complete disaster. When he'd been a musical performer, he satisfied himself with visits to prostitutes. Then in America, he married an actress called Mildred because I'd always wanted a wife, and she was young and pretty. <laughs> 
Now, the sad thing about the first two of Chaplin's marriages, to Mildred and then to Lita, who became the mother of his first two sons, is that there's no indication he even liked them at all. After he broke up with Lita, she took him to court for failing to pay maintenance towards the children, at which point the League of Women Voters organised a campaign to demand that none of his films were shown throughout the state. You can imagine the Child Support Agency, if they'd been there, they'd have banned Orson Welles' films by mistake, bankrupted Hollywood, forced the entire film industry to be sold off to the Saudis, then said to his ex-wife, there you are, £3.40 towards the milk bill. <laughs> Lita was, in fact, awarded $825,000. Uh, shortly after this, he met and eventually married the actress Paulette Goddard, who was also approaching the height of her fame, and he said... The bond between Paulette and me was loneliness. She was out from New York and knew no one. It was a case of Robinson Crusoe discovering Friday for both of us. So, so he cast her as the leading lady in his next film, Modern Times. He'd become intrigued by the way that modern machinery and factory life had enveloped humanity, making people subordinate to the rhythms of machines and destroying individuality. So Modern Times, made in 1936, begins with three images, a huge ticking clock, hundreds of sheep and hundreds of workers shuffling towards a factory. The film's full of anarchist aspirations, with Chaplin and Goddard trying to live as free individuals, really, in the face of the institutions of modern times. Industrialists hated it and tried to have it banned. The fascist governments of Germany and Italy did ban it, and Goebbels tried to come up with a plan for suing Chaplin for plagiarism. <laughs> After modern times, Chaplin and Paulette Goddard's marriage fell apart, and the split did lead to one of the 20th century's most bizarre love sequences of Brooksidean proportions because Goddard started an affair with the Mexican muralist Diego Rivera, whose own wife, painter Frida Kahlo, was having an affair with Trotsky. Wouldn't that have been a brilliant scene to see the Chaplin family, the Rivera family, and Trotsky all in a room together going, I don't know how we're going to sort this out. <laughs> For his next comic target, he chose the subject of fascism, leading to The Great Dictator, which was released in 1940, and was about a Jewish barber who gets mistaken for Hitler. Now, the film ends with the barber making a speech before a huge rally, which is clearly Chaplin's address to the world. The film salesman told Chaplin that this final speech would lose him a million dollars in sales of the film, and Chaplin told him... Well, I don't care if it's five million. I'm going to do it. So the final six-minute speech stayed in, and the Communist Party printed the whole speech as a pamphlet. President Roosevelt, on the other hand, summons Chaplin to the White House, and when he arrived, said... Sit down, Charlie. Your picture is giving us a lot of trouble in the Argentine. <laughs> that is when you know you've made a comedy worth making, isn't it? <laughs> because you really can't imagine Patricia Routledge being called in to see Clinton. <laughs> and told, have you any idea how much your last series of keeping up appearances is costing us in trade with Uruguay? <laughs> His next film got him in even more trouble. Monsieur Verdoux was released in 1947 and was about a banker made redundant in the recession who married rich women, murdered them, and then claimed the insurance. At the end, on his way to being hung, Monsieur Verdoux says, That's the history of many a big business. One murder makes a villain, millions a hero. Numbers sanctify, my good friend. Although the war was over, the Cold War had begun and McCarthyite America was now in full swing. No film could be shown without a license from the Production Code Administration, which even before the war outlawed... Profanity, nudity, semi-nudity, drug trafficking, violence, white slavery, plans for bank robberies and other crimes. So Quentin Tarantino wouldn't have stood a chance. <laughs>
thunder. Shut the dickens up, or I'm going to get medieval on your nose. And with this version, I wonder if some people would have said, what I loved is that the John Travolta character has a water pistol fired at him, and then the next day, he's dry again. The amazing thing about Monsieur Verdoux was that the censors were so busy looking at the fine detail, they seemed to have missed the whole point. For example, one of their objections was, There should be no showing of or suggestion of toilets in the bathroom. <laughs> Presumably, by this time, they were now so deranged, they were thinking, Only communists go to the toilet! There's probably a secret film of them somewhere haranguing some poor actor. Have you or have you ever been to the toilet? Are you aware? Shaking the drips is a communist activity. <laughs> the word voluptuous had to be removed from the film. Verdu had to refer to the priest as father instead of my good man. But as the film was about to be released, Chaplin was summoned to appear before the Un-American Activities Committee. Then the film was picketed by the Catholic Legion, who carried signs that read, Chaplin's a fellow traveller. Kick the alien out of the country. Send Chaplin to Russia. One of the charges made against Chaplin and others at the time was that of premature anti-fascism. <laughs> Wouldn't it have been brilliant if he'd said, oh, I'm sorry, this doesn't normally happen. <laughs> Usually I can tolerate fascism for about 20 minutes, but it's Goebbels, he gets me excited. <laughs> Maybe we can try again in the morning. <laughs> Chaplin responded to the attacks by campaigning against the deportations and imprisonment of other communists. He was subpoenaed three times to appear before the Un-American Activities Commission, but each time they postponed the hearing. Maybe it was because Chaplin said that if he was called, he would turn up dressed as the tramp. Isn't it a tragedy of history that that never happened? This committee demands an answer, Mr. Chaplin. Refrain immediately from kicking Senator McCarthy in the backside. And stop carrying that ladder over your shoulder in such a manner that when you swing round, everyone ducks under it and then gets hit by it as you swing back. Ever since then, the great debate has been about whether he was or wasn't a communist. But the question's irrelevant. The point is what he believed, regardless of whether he was a card-carrying member of an organisation or not. Ideologically, Chaplin really was more of an anarchist than a communist. But also, it's worth considering the ideas of the American Communist Party at the time. The great dictator didn't have to be very radical to sound as if it was drafted by the Communist Party. So... Part of the speech that Chaplin makes at the end of The Great Dictator goes, We don't want to hate and despise each other. Greed has poisoned men's souls. Dictators free themselves, but they enslave the people. And it ends positively. Look up, Hannah. The soul of man has been given wings, and at last he is beginning to fly. Look up, Hannah. Look up. And there was another irony. During the making of The Great Dictator, Stalin signed his pact with Hitler. So the Communist Party line on fascism changed, and now they were quite embarrassed by Chaplin's film. Chaplin, on the other hand, despised the deal between Russia and the Nazis, so the truthful answer to the question, was Chaplin ever a member of the Communist Party, is probably, well, no, because he was too left-wing for them. <laughs> as well as the political attacks on Chaplin, the FBI orchestrated a trial in collusion with a woman that he'd had a fling with called Joan Barry. They said that Chaplin had given Joan Barry a train ticket to New York, contravening a law called the Mann Act, which made it illegal to... Transport a woman across state lines for immoral purposes. <laughs> then 
they abandoned that particular line of attack and they brought a paternity case against him, although blood tests showed that he couldn't have been the father of Joan Barry's child. And at the trial, the prosecutor called Chaplin... A grey-headed old buzzard, little runt of a Spengali, lecherous hound and cheap cockney cad. If a prosecutor called you a cheap cockney cad, it'd be tempted when he asked you if you'd got an alibi to go, Alibis! I've got personal alibis, automatic alibis, machine operated alibis! There you go, ladies, I can do you. I can't have been there, I was on a boat to Honolulu. I'm not going to ask 50 pounds, 40 pounds, 30 pounds. He's a hundred quid in the shops here. He's been on the telly, police five. Wow! All right, ladies, give me old man treat. Alibi, all for you. Stick your hands up. Bish boss, 50 pound wallet. <laughs> In 1952, Chaplin set off on a boat for England, where he was opening his film Limelight, and on his second day at sea, he received a cable from the American Attorney General that his re-entry visa had been rescinded on the grounds of... Advocating communism or associating with communist or pro-communist organisations. So Chaplin, the man who'd come quicker than anyone else from the workhouse to be a millionaire, and was therefore the personification of the American dream, was kicked out of America. In 1943, Chaplin had met another young woman, Una O'Neill, daughter of the playwright Eugene. She was 18 and he was 54. They got married and after his exile, they moved to Switzerland. With Una, he had six children, father in the last when he was 73. He died on Christmas Day, 1977, sparking off a brilliantly Chaplin-esque series of events. His body in his coffin was stolen by a Polish and a Bulgarian car mechanic and held for ransom before being discovered in a cornfield. But sadder than that is that he's now usually thought of as just a clown, a classic clown, which is why many people grow up having seen his films when they were a kid, just thinking, well, he wasn't that funny, was he? But it's hard to appreciate Chaplin without realising that his comedy films were serious, even when he was falling over. He was adamant that he wasn't a propagandist, but he was just as adamant that... My films have always been for the underdog. No matter how rich Chaplin became, he could never forget the reality of where he came from. Hannah, as in, look up, Hannah, look up, was the name of his mother. And possibly the finest scene in any film that he made is in The Kid, where the abandoned child brought up by the tramp is taken away from Chaplin by the authorities at the age of six. Chaplin went to enormous lengths to ensure that the scene conveyed the most powerful image that he could imagine, which is the full horror of a six-year-old child who on a doleful day doesn't realise what's happening until the forlorn bewilderment strikes him that his mother is going in one direction and he in another. Now we live in an age when the most popular clown in the world still plays on the emotions of six-year-old children but by getting them to demand extra-large fries in a Lion King party box. <laughs> so in an age when we live under a government that thinks that principles are a troublesome nuisance Chaplin reminds us that film can tap into the spirit of defiance and rebellion that lurks inside most human beings. He would appreciate that one of the most popular films ever made is Spartacus, whereas that film wouldn't have been so popular if the Romans had marched into the field and said, Which one is Spartacus? And all the slaves had gone, It's him over there, mate. <laughs> He's nothing to do with us, you see. We're new Spartacus. <laughs> Steele Lecture was written and performed by Mark Steele with the help of Melanie Hudson and Martin Hyder. The producer was Phil Clark.